Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Nanette. I'm Nanette, a compulsive overeater. Hi, Nanette. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, I came to OA mainly to lose weight so I'd catch some man and that that man would fix me. (laughs) So I heard from the very beginning this wasn't a diet club, but secretly it was a diet club for me. Um... My, my first meeting, I remember one pitch from that meeting, and that was somebody who was trying to parallel park, and she made a mistake and crashed into a fire hydrant and broke it. And then the water went all over the place, and she was very embarrassed. And that's the only pitch I remember from my first meeting. And I knew from that pitch that you could talk about anything here. You didn't have to talk about food. And I identified with a with a sharing, so I, you called yourselves compulsive overeaters, and so I called myself compulsive, a compulsive overeater from the first meeting. Um, when I was in college, I read something about alcoholism, and what I read was that the alcoholic drinks and then is dismayed by his drinking, but the only relief he could get was to drink. So he, drank, he would drink and then feel bad about it and drink some more to get rid of the feeling of feeling bad about it. And when I read that, I totally identified, but not with alcohol, with food. I would be dismayed that my stomach stuck out, and then I would have to, some relief, I would eat over it, and then my stomach would stick out, and then I'd have to eat over that. (laughs) And then I thought I was the only person on earth who had that secret uh, happening. And when I came to OA, I found like I was one of your species that I really belonged. For the first uh, two years, I went to three or four meetings a week. And every meeting I went to, I practically looked for a man. And in those days, there are fewer men than today, so you can see it wasn't a very good plan. <laughs> so, but I, I thought, at least I have a meeting under my belt. That's how I put it to myself. And um, because I was in a place where there are many OA members. There's also OA members who were AA members as well. And one of them was speaking at an AA meeting, and a few of us OA people, uh, the people I started to hang out with, said, let's go hear her speak. And so we took our cars and we caravaned to this AA meeting, and I'd never been to AA before. The only thing I knew about AA was what I saw in movies and looked very depressing. (laughs) And so I knew that AA was the origin of the species. Everything grew from AA. So for me, it was like an adventure to see the alcoholics. And (laughs) and in my my thoughts, it would be a, a... bare room with eight men in trench coats and a bare light bulb. (laughs) But when we got there, it was an enormous speaker meeting, and we got there late, so it was during the break, and everybody was in clusters talking, and 
And as soon as I walked into the room, there was so much energy in the air, I could feel it on my face. It was like it was palpable. It was like I could cut it with a knife. It was so strong, this energy. And to me, everybody looked hip slick and cool. And they were clean and pretty and attractive people. And so I, I went to that meeting, and I was so attracted to this meeting that I decided to go to other AA meetings. And the way I found my um, AA meetings, I'd be in my OA meeting, and then I would hear somewhere, on Monday nights there's an AA meeting here. So I show up on Monday night, and there was an AA meeting there. And I think, fortunately, every meeting I found of AA, which maybe was three or four, all large speaker meetings. And um, I didn't even get that AA was a program of recovery because I had no recovery in OA. Um, to me, it was like going to the theater. There'd be this tragic story, and then what happened, and the happy ending. And then everyone would applaud, and I just loved it. I just loved it. <laughs> and an example of how I ate... Um, the place where I worked, we had a 45-minute lunch period. And we did. We voted to have that because then we could get off work at 4.45 instead of 5. So I would dutifully fix a little brown bag lunch, and I would take it to work and put it in my desk. That When lunchtime came, it was really too boring to eat. So I wouldn't eat it. I would go down to the cafeteria where they had always had two main specials with four sides that you can choose two of. I would choose one main grease and two side greases. <laughs> and I was always a fast eater, and I'd be finished. So there's still time left for lunch period. So I went down to the first floor where some guy sold chewing gum, newspapers, and pre-made sandwiches. So I'd maybe get one or two of those. And I would tear the crust off because they were really pretty dreadful sandwiches. I mean, the tuna was like soaked through the bread. It was ghastly. So, but I ate it. I mean... And then I returned to my desk, and there was the lunch I abandoned. So I ate that, too. And I guess I didn't get that I had 45 minutes to eat lunch. I thought I had to eat for 45 minutes. <laughs> so at these AA meetings I went to, and OA meetings, but the AA meetings, mostly men, I kept seeing this one particular guy there, and we struck up a relationship. Mission accomplished. I came to OA to get a guy, and there he was. <laughs> and um, so I went, we went to AA meetings. I went with him. My credentials were I'm with him. <laughs> and I would sit there, and it was like a place to be seen with my date. I mean, I, I just did not get 12-step recovery at all. But we had a kind of stormy relationship. It was on again, off again, breaks up, breakups and misunderstandings. And some people would talk to me at the AA meetings during the break. And some, when, as soon as they found out I wasn't an alcoholic, <clears throat> they either totally lost interest or they gently suggested another 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And so finally I went to that program and I didn't like it because I felt sorry for all of them. They were obviously very bad at interpersonal relationships. <laughs> I, on the other hand, was there to get some handy hints on how to manage him better in a program way. 
<laughs> and it was there that I hit bottom. And I can't, I won't describe my bottom there, but it, the bottom is not what gets you to the program, but it's what makes you become willing and teachable. And I suddenly had a willingness to get a sponsor, take directions, never say no to a program request. And I started to grow and transform. Okay. Um, it's a long pitch. So, um, the biggest outward transformation, I think, is the lessening of my shyness. I was so shy that if I found out some oral presentation was involved, I would drop out of the class. If I couldn't drop out of the class, I wouldn't do it. I would take an F. And I come from a family where I remember one report card, I had five A's and one B, and my, my father was pretty angry with that one, and she, he wouldn't even sign it. So my mother had to sign that report card. So you don't take F's, but I took an F. I was debilitatingly shy. And even to, I, I tend to be, my sponsor um, fortunately told me that I may always be on the reserve side. And when she told me that, I felt some relief because I thought I had to be someone else. I thought I had to grow into someone else. But she gave me permission to be who I was. And I still evolved, but at least I didn't have to be someone else. So after I was in the other 12-step program for five years, I came back to OA. Now, I, I didn't go to a meeting regularly during these five years, just sporadically, once a month or something. And I had no recovery, but I did have recovery in the other 12-step program. Emotional and spiritual, but none of it translated to the way I ate. I still ate as crazy as I always ate. Um, um, like, after work, I would drive to a fast food place and order, as if for two people, but it was really for me. I would order two main things, two side things, and one diet soda. <laughs> then I would take it to the car, but I wouldn't eat it, because if, I, if a food thought entered my brain, I'd have to eat it. If I thought it, I ate it. And if I didn't eat it right away, I would have to eat it. Sometime, a few days later, I would never give up that food thought. I would have to eat it. So then I would go to the next fast food place, and whatever I had in mind, that, that was the specialty of that fast food place, I would take it to the car, and then I would sit in the car and eat everything all at once, and I'd feel this relief of the work day's over. And now I can go home. So sometimes I went home, and I put two two frozen dinners in the oven, take a shower, put on a clean flannel nightgown, and eat these two dinners watching TV. And maybe an hour later, I'd have several sandwiches composed of white bread with room temperature butter, sugar sprinkled on it sandwiches. And then maybe before bed, I'd have a boil a bag of cream spinach and a, eat a can of fruit cocktail. I didn't eat this way every day, but it was not an unusual day at all. So I ate. So when I came back to OA, and that was about 34 years ago, I actually have, I have currently 33 years of abstinence. And in the eight years from the time I came into OA to when I got this particular abstinence, I was abstinent eight times, this being the eighth time. The other seven times were also abstinence, meant to be the forever one, but none of them ever were. Um, I had 
three days, five days, four days, and something like 15 days, 17 days, 23 days, 27 days was the second longest time. So there's a big difference between 27 days and 33 years. So I don't see myself as ever having relapsed. Those other seven times were attempts at recovery. They were abstinences, but they weren't recovery. And any diet is an abstinence, but not necessarily recovery. So I'm going to try to describe what happened the eighth time. By this time, I had a program in place, and I was already transformed in a different person. I would go to OA, not like it, because at this time, OA um, hadn't, the OA big book, had, the OA book, brown book, had not been written. The OA 12 and 12 had not been written. We only had pamphlets, so we use AA big book, the AA big book in AA 12 and 12. And in fact, many of the speakers were AA speakers with no food problem because there was so little um, recovery in OA at the time. Um, so, okay. I would, ha I would have to go to my other 12-step program to feel grateful, recovered, and come to OA, hate OA, go to the other ones to feel okay again to get a another meeting, and then I kept doing that, and I felt just more miserable than ever. So I know when you come to a 12-step program, you're supposed to feel better and not worse, but I was feeling worse. And I knew what I had to do, which was to work the 12 steps, starting with one, because I had learned that each step builds on the previous one, so I had to start with one. I'm powerless over food, and my life has become unmanageable. Um, I won't talk about the second half. half. I'll just talk about powerless over food. That first step is about powerlessness. It's not about honesty. Honesty is an aspect of the step, but the step is about powerlessness. And I often wondered why people would prefer to think of it as a step regarding honesty. Because in our culture, we value honesty, but we do not value powerlessness. And to be honest, I came to OA to get powerful over food. I did not come here to be powerless. But I had... I have recovery from another 12-step program, so I had to translate that in, in OA, which was, um, I was taught that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was like for me to ask a tuberculosis not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what TB makes him do. <clears throat> if every time he coughed, he said, I'm going to work 12 steps and this is the last time I'm going to cough. He's saying two things. One, that he doesn't have a real disease. And two, that he has power over a cough. Mm. Well, I know TB is a real disease. I know he has zero power over a cough. So that's how I had to do it. I had to make it okay to binge and overeat. That was my cough. I tried before writing about it, talking about it, thinking about it, sharing about it. None of those things made me powerless over food because I needed to be really powerless over food. It had to be in my gut powerless. Really, truly believe it. So that was my cough. So I said, it's perfectly okay for me to binge and overeat. Then I thought, how can anybody recover if it's okay to do that? And it was okay for me to do that, because that was the only honest way I could be powerless, if it's okay. Because nobody coughs and says, I'll never cough again. You know, I should. You know, nobody does that. 
because they're really powerless. So I acted as if, and I felt like a fraud. But I had to act as if because I knew that was a path for me to do step one. And like it was like step um, catch 22. I felt the reason I couldn't be powerless over food is because I was using my personal power to hold my weight down to where I was afraid of. And the weight I was afraid of was 200 pounds. Because whatever weight I was, I never wanted to be there anyway. What's going to stop me from weighing 200 pounds except my personal power? And yet that you have to be powerless to recover, so it's like catch-22. Uh, be powerless and weigh 200 pounds, or don't weigh 200 pounds and be powerless. I mean, it's like, it was quite a dilemma. So I read the AA 12 and 12 in step, about step one. And what came up to me in that particular reading was that you have to be powerless because then you, you have, you, you're willing to do stuff you would never ordinarily do. One of the things I would never ordinarily do is call somebody before I binge. Because when I want to binge, I don't want to be interrupted. I just want to binge. <laughs> and um, I didn't know it at the time, but I always ate for relief. And the bottom line of that, re- I mean, I am the garden variety compulsive overeater. Eat when I'm happy, eat when I'm sad, eat when I'm bored, eat when I'm excited. And to this very day when I have a meal, part of me feels like it's a party. I, I, I enjoy eating. So... Okay, so suddenly I was starting, I said, meals at mealtime with life in between. I'm going to check the time. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So I I told you how I ate. So one thing I realized that when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls and it made me feel bad. I connected that. So I said, when I'm in a restaurant, and if they have rolls, I'll have one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And I had to put it that way, because what I'd been doing, I'd take the roll, use the butter, finish the roll, but there'd be a smidgen of butter left. I'd take a second roll to use up that butter, but there wasn't enough butter for the second roll. <laughs> so I had to open the second butter. And then, with some second butter left, I'd take a third roll to use up the second butter. So it kind of snowballed. So, so I did that, and if I were in a restaurant with the rolls, and, and then I ate every single thing they served me, because I figured if they served it to me, it was my portion, and restaurants don't have tiny portions. I mean, every grain of rice, the decorative lettuce, the, pars- <laughs> the parsley if I wanted it, you know, and that was another absent meal. And then one restaurant, they put a basket down, and they had three different kinds of rolls. Then there's a big debate. Do I choose the best-looking one? How should I? And then I I just knew that if this is a life change, I can't feel deprived. So I had, I said I'll have one of each kind of roll. And it happened to be three kinds, so I ate one of each three kinds, but they all share the same pat of butter, and I felt... (laughs) I felt that was another abstinent meal. And meals at mealtime with life in between um, meant I could eat popcorn at the movies. That was, for me, that part of life in between. If I'm at an afternoon party and people are eating, I eat too. And then I eat dinner as well because I don't want to feel deprived. 
So this is not a small absence. This is a change of life, lifestyle change, however minute. Um, I, always, I always wanted to go in the food part from A to Z. Z meaning perfect food, thin body. I would never go to, want to go from A to B because B I could go to and it wasn't worth anything. But for, for, I started beginning to do the baby steps I could do. That meant going from A to B. And something interesting happened once I got to B. I could see what C was. But before I got to B, I didn't see what C was. And after I got to C, I could see what D was. And I had to do it that way. So, and I also discovered I had a disease of perfectionism. And I had it very strong. It was like the conjoined twin of the disease of compulsive overeating. It's like they were, if one twin got the flu, they both got the flu. If one twin took an aspirin, it would be in both circulation system. It was, we were joined. So in order for me to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating, I had to also be willing, just willing to recover from the disease of perfectionism because they went together in my case. And the only way I've ever found to recover from the disease of perfectionism is that I think when I think I'm imperfect, I have to keep it. Because every time I started over, I was practicing the disease of perfectionism. Okay, so I started, be, started recovering, and I had three months of abstinence, and it was most, I couldn't believe it. I, it was honeymoon for sure. And suddenly, I wanted to binge. Every fiber in my body wanted that food, and I fought it and fought it and fought it. And I found out way later to why, it was self-loathing that I had to binge over. It wasn't just whatever situation, it was me in the situation. Even if it, I didn't even identify it, it was always to quell the self-loathing. So anyway, somehow I just had to binge. But I didn't want to ruin my absence, but I had to. And it was about four o'clock in the afternoon and I was by myself. And so I called somebody who had given her phone number to me at a meeting whom I'd never ever seen again. I called her and I said, I'm Nanette, um, you, I met you at X meeting and I want to binge. She said, you, re you must really want to recover because you called me. And until she said that, I didn't know that. I thought I wanted to be bad and I was going to be bad. And then, um, but when she told me I wanted to recover, I realized I wanted to recover. But that doesn't mean I wasn't going to binge, I was still going to binge. <laughs> So she said, when would you like to start binging? She didn't say, what's going on? Let's talk about it. When would you like to start binging? And I thought, this is better than I thought. And I said, six o'clock, because I thought six o'clock would look more like dinner. She said, well, can you wait until six? I said, yes. She said, don't binge until six. I said, okay. And we hung up, like two minutes, the whole phone call. So then I had two hours to kill. <laughs> One hour and 58 minutes to kill. And so I did the dishes, fixed my bed, grabbed the TV guide and started to channel hop. And I was channel hopping, watching this, watching that. 
and I, my eyes hit the clock, and it was 6.15. It was 15 minutes past my binge start, and I hadn't started. I could have been binging 15 whole minutes. <laughs>